0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Today is the last Sunday of the year and the last Sunday in which we are talking about the theme of Christmas. We've had a cantata, we've had a play, We've had various teachings from God's Word to help us treasure Jesus more. And we're going to look at yet another passage about Christmas, and it's a passage about the Magi visiting the child Jesus to give him presents and to worship him. This is a popular passage, although there are a few misconceptions about it, some of which I hope to address in today's sermon. Once again, our passage is, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, verse 6, And you, O Bethlehem, Gold and fragrances and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Several years ago, I was getting a haircut from a guy who was extremely talented at cutting hair. Very gifted. I was in a barbershop. It was a new barbershop. My mom had told me about it. I was happy to support local business. And him and I began to talk and we had good conversations. And quickly into the conversation, I realized that, you know, me and this guy, we have some we have some things in common. But I would find out eventually that we didn't have everything in common. Somehow, if memory serves me correctly, the theme of faith and belief came up. And I told him, I'm a Christian. And then he said, I'm a Muslim. And then he said, we worship the same God, don't we? How would you respond? This conversation reminds us of worship. Our hearts were made to worship. Like King Herod, sometimes our hearts turn in on themselves and we desire worship. Perhaps even becoming a Christian after becoming a believer, you might make something else more important to your life than God, thus making that thing your object of worship. The big theme of this passage is that because Jesus is king, we should worship him. That's How do I know that? There's a few things that give that away. One is the word worship is repeated several times. Verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshiped him. This is not just a fun, fuzzy Christmas story about magi and presents and so forth. This passage is fundamentally a distinct observation of who the child was, and that is the king of the Jews, the king of the world, born to be worshipped. That's the theme of this passage. We also see kingship language, that This king, Jesus, is not just some ordinary person. No, we know that for several various clues. One of them is that Matthew tells us that he's born in Bethlehem, the country Bethlehem. Bethlehem is repeated several times in this passage. And as a reader to Matthew's audience, or as readers of the scriptures today, our minds are meant to be drawn to the Old Testament, where many kings were born in Bethlehem. Most prominently, King David, who was born in Bethlehem, and he was the king of Israel. But Jesus is not just the king of Israel, but he is the king of the world. And David's ministry was in part a foreshadowing of the coming of the true king who was to come into the world. Bethlehem. It's a place where many kings were born. And here now, the greatest one is born this is not on accident it's not like jesus could have been born anywhere he had to have been born in bethlehem to fulfill prophecy that's what we see in verses five through six that's an old testament passage from the book of micah there's a prophecy it's a a divine prediction that inevitably comes true lots of them in the old testament you might say the old testament is our promises New Testament fulfillment, and one of the promises made hundreds and hundreds of years ago is that the Messiah, the Deliverer, the King, God, in the flesh, would be born in Bethlehem. This was extremely important. It was a prophecy, and here it comes true. And then we move on into the narrative, and we see these guys called the wise men some, some translations say wise men, some translations say magi. Someone asked me this past week, what's the difference? Nothing, just different titles for the same people. And the word magi here, uh, it comes from the word magic. Magi, magic, magician. In the narrow sense, it means a magician, but over the years, it has broader meaning. You might say linguistic flexibility, or it, it can mean various things. Uh, and, and at this point in history, uh, the word most accurately means astrologers. Magi were men who were astrologers. You know astrology, like the study of stars and planets and so forth? They were those kind of guys. They were intellectuals. They were academics. That's why we're talking about seeing a star and so forth. Um, God is stooping to their level. They were, they were men who studied astrology, dream interpretation, sacred writings, They pursued magic. They weren't necessarily godly men. They weren't necessarily those who had a relationship with God. But somehow through their royal calculations and their studies, they concluded this. A royal birth had taken place and they had come to worship him. Tradition has it that there were three wise men. There's actually a hymn called Three Wise Men. Uh, Oftentimes you might hear that there were three of them. That should be rejected because nowhere in the Bible does it say that there were three wise men. It doesn't say how many wise men there were. It just says that there were wise men. So there wasn't three. Let's go ahead and get that number out of our head. It probably comes from the fact that there were three gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And people have alleged said that because there's three gifts, there must be three wise men. That's not actually a logical connection. We don't know how many magi there were. In fact, they... They probably didn't come by themselves. They, they likely came with many attendants. They likely came with many guards. This was probably a 20, 30, 40 day trip. It took a lot of work to get there. But for these men, these men, many of which who do not know God in a saving way, their actions could not have been more appropriate because after that sacrificial journey with gifts and attendants, and other people with them, they come to worship the one and only true King, Jesus. I've mentioned the word worship several times here already so far, and if I were to ask you one-on-one personally, and if I said, hey, when's when's that time? When's that time at Bethesda is the worship part? Uh, Some of you would say, worship part? It's a time where we sing songs. You know, the 9 a.m., the hymns. The 10, 20 a.m. service, the contemporary songs, worship. It's when we sing. Uh, worship is not less than singing, but it's more than singing. To say that worship is only singing is to have an incomplete and deficient understanding of what worship is about. The entire service is worship. All of life is worship. The word worship comes from the word worth. So what is something worth to you? If I, if I were to ask you, you know, come to your home say, what is this worth to you? You might say, it's not worth that much to me. You can do whatever you want with it. I, that thing is really worth a lot to me. Please don't touch it. It's, it's, it's where you ascribe worth to your life. And so, worshiping Jesus is not merely coming to church on Sunday and singing songs. Although that is critical for Christian growth. Worshiping Jesus means ascribing worth to him above all other things in your life. That's what it means to worship Jesus, that he is some central preeminent in your life, more important than anything. John Piper says it this way, true worship is a valuing or a treasuring of God above all things what it means to worship Jesus. All of life is worship. And for those of us who are followers of Christ, we love family, we love friends, we want to get promoted, we want to enjoy the things of the world, all those things are a tremendous blessing, but Christ calls his disciples to make him more important than anything else. That's what it means to worship Jesus. And living like this requires a sacrifice, you look at the Magi. They traveled 20, 30, 40 days. They asked discreet questions. They had gifts with them. They had a plan. They were ready. They were searching. They were seeking. They were wondering. It didn't happen on accident, but they were active in trying to figure out where this new king had been born and where he is currently. If you want to grow in Christ, it's going to take a sacrifice of some sort. It happens by grace-driven effort. It happens by being intentional. By understanding, hey, God is my everything. He's the sum, central person in my life. And I want to figure out how I can know Him more. How I can worship Him better. How I can serve Him more. And this is not... Just for young people, this is not just for those in their 20s or 30s. This is for anyone. Regardless of age, if you're still breathing, God's not done with you. And the call is to figure out how can I set up my entire life in such a way that I show that he's worthy to me more than anything else. And we've got the new year coming up on Wednesday. Let me just encourage you to to think about your spiritual life to think about what changes to make, what additions to take on, what subtractions. To, I'm going to remove that from my schedule to ensure that this time with God, that, that this area of my spiritual life, I want to be strengthened. Don't just approach Wednesday and the new year passively and just, oh, just another year and I'm just going to go through the motions. Let's, let's consider what we can do to stir one another up to grow in the new year and what sacrifices we can make To show that Christ is more preeminent than anything. There's so much joy and satisfaction of knowing him. But it comes through being intentional. By being equipped by him to love him and to make these sacrifices. The magi did it. They wanted to worship him. But not everyone in this narrative wanted to do that. In fact, we get to another character named Herod, King Herod, maybe you've heard a few things about him. There's several Herods in the Bible. And Herod here is the king of Jerusalem at the time. In some ways, he was a respectable man. He was very gifted. Uh, He was sort of an intelligent mind, architecture builder. He he had the, the temple in Jerusalem rebuilt. He rebuilt palaces and fortresses and so on and so forth. He was wealthy. Rich man, politically gifted man, great at administration, great leader, organizer. He's one of those kind of guys. But ethically and morally, he was corrupt. He was bankrupt. He made the taxes really high for people. He caused a lot of consternation for people. He had a lot of people killed, even people in his own family, including his wife and two kids, two sons, two of his sons. He was ruthless. He was a wicked man. And in verse 4, when he heard about Jesus being born, he he had to ask the magi the question, wait, 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 wait. A a savior, a king, where is he going to be born? And they told him, Bethlehem, and they used an Old Testament scripture. This further shows Herod's incompetence. If you're the king, you should know that. He didn't. He didn't. And when he found out Jesus was being born, he said to the Magi, he said, hey, when you find out where he's born, let me know, because I'm going to come and worship him too. He was lying. That was a trick. He was trying to manipulate the situation. And we know that because later on in Matthew's Gospel, Herod has all children under two years old killed. He was was trying to figure out a way to, to trap Jesus, to get rid of him. He saw Jesus as a threat. Oh no, someone's going to take away my power. He knew that he was corrupt and those who appointed to office were corrupt just like him. He was not truly trying to worship Jesus. This false king was trying to somehow stop someone else who would dare walk on his footsteps. Do you see what Matthew is doing with the contrast between King Herod and King Jesus? There's clues everywhere in this passage. We see the worship part the repetition of worship. We see the emphasis of Bethlehem and knowing our Old Testament Bible well. We know what the implications are with Bethlehem. And now we see a contrast. This is, this is Matthew further <laughs> driving home the point that Jesus is king and he shall be worshipped because he's showing a contrast between a good king and a poor king. Herod doesn't know his Old Testament scripture well. But Jesus did, and he often quoted it from memory. Herod was a ruthless, wicked ruler. Jesus was gentle and meek and humble, invite anyone and everyone, regardless of age or ethnicity, to come to him and believe in him, to have eternal life. Herod had people close to him killed. Jesus Christ never killed anyone and never had an unrighteous thought towards anyone, but instead he himself was hung on the cross in our place for our sins and rose from the dead, a plan set up by wicked people. There's a big difference between Herod and Jesus. And Matthew here is trying to hit home the point that Jesus is king. One uses his power to hurt others. The other uses his power to help others flourish. There's a book out there by Andy Crouch called "Playing God: Redeeming the Gift of Power." It's a book about power. Uh, when I say the word power, many of you uh, immediately you think of negative things. We often equate the word power with bad. We often think of bad pastors that we had, or bad leaders, bad teachers, parenting issues. Power, we often think of it as a bad thing and and there's room to grieve that and there's room to, that's understandable, especially if you've had a poor experience. But one of the things the book was trying to do was uh, redeem the word power. And the author successfully argues that power is actually a good thing. It can be a good thing. And actually, uh, power is for the flourishing of other people, the flourishing of society, to help. Help people, serve them. If you're older or intelligent or you have money, if you have status, you have influence or whatever, and you have people under you working for you, if you're a manager, if you're a boss, the people around you that God has placed are there for you to exercise and use that power to help them flourish, to bless them, to serve them. For example, if you're a parent, biblically and literally speaking, you have authority over your children. If you're a CEO if you're a manager of a company if you're an entrepreneur of some sort you have authority over various employees it might be limited but there's still authority all of that there is to help others be um, be blessed to help them flourish let me ask you this question since if power is influence and, and all of us to varying degrees in this room have power how are you using that power Are you using it to micromanage and control And people? Or are you using it to bless them, to serve them, to help them? When people under you, whether it's children or grandchildren or those who work with your company, when, when, when you walk in the room, do they cringe? Or are they glad to see you? Perhaps you do a good job of helping those under your care flourish. Maybe you do a good job of that. Maybe Maybe your issue or maybe... Maybe the issue is less of this sort of negative, bullying, domineering spirit. Maybe, maybe you feel um, insecure or jealous of someone else might taking away your power or your influence. Your company recently hired someone, and you're wondering, man, is that, is that person going to take my shine here or take my job? Are they going to be considered for a job promotion over me? We get new church members we praise God or... Uh, maybe there's a ministry you run here or there's an activity here that you do and you're worried, oh no, is someone going to take away my power? Are they going to take away my influence? When we, when we feel threatened by people in this way, we're essentially acting out of insecurity and jealousy and not out of neighbor love. The people that God has put in our lives, uh, image bearers of God, every person is an image bearer of God whether they're a believer or not. And although we do not need to be their best friend and always text them back and we don't need to be friends with everyone, but there is a a kindness, a gentleness, a respectability that Christ calls his people to give to everyone. And if you have any power, it is to help the people around you flourish. The, The more that we find our sense of identity and security in life from Christ and who he is and what he's done for his people, the more we will feel free to love and serve other people. The more our identity and security is wrapped up in what we do, in our position, in our good looks, in our charisma, in our money, and so forth, it's going to be more difficult to serve other people and bless other people in this area. So the, the remedy is to grow more in love with God, to understand God more, to know Him more, and to find our sense of worth from Him, and to ascribe worth to Him. And the more that we do that, the more we will be able to love and bless and serve other people and not feel threatened by them. The people in our lives are image bearers of God to be loved, not to be somehow threatened by. King Herod was threatened, but the Magi were not. The Magi are eventually led by a star to the home of Jesus. We just heard the song, they Saw the star, and they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Um, some astrology and astrologers are actually pretty, pretty against the God of the Bible. So God here using a star is not his necessarily His endorsement of astrology, because some people like to look to Pluto and Mars and so forth and give divine information. If you want to know about God, look to the Apostle Paul, not to Pluto. Look in the Bible. This is not necessarily God's endorsement of astrology, but sort of his, his love and his care and his understanding of people and how they're wired and how they're gifted. And God says, okay, you're astrologers. You understand stars. You do this like all day. You're getting close. I'm going to stoop to where you're at and provide a star supernaturally to lead you to where Jesus is. This is God that shows God's individual care in God's individual, all-knowing knowledge of every single person. God knows everything about you, both good and the bad, and he often meets us where we're at to help us to get to the next step of where he wants us to be. Ordinarily, these are not the means that God uses to guide or govern his people. Ordinarily, things like the Bible, God's revealed will, what's, what's in the Bible, the Holy Spirit, a he, not an it, third person of the Trinity who lives in every believer. If you're not a believer, you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you. The Holy Spirit is given and power to Christians who follow Jesus. Your conscience that helps guide as a compass, uh, wisdom from other mature Christians, so forth. These are just some means that God uses to lead his people. But here we see a star, we see a dream. These are things that would have been very familiar to the men that God used to lead to the house to worship Jesus. And they, they did. They fell down and they worshipped him. At this point, they were Gentiles. They were, the gospel hadn't really went to Gentiles. It was primarily towards the Jews. And here, even though the Gentile magi, many of them did not have a right relationship with God, their actions could not be more appropriate and more fitting. They fall down and worship Christ. This is a foreshadowing towards the gospel going to the Gentiles, Gentiles, anyone who's not Jewish, through Paul and Peter. And then eventually to everyone who's a Christian, people like you and I. And it is an appropriate foreshadowing of what is about to come when the gospel breaks forth to everyone, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Another Misconception after they give Christ the, the gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, we should not attach too much symbolism to that. I saw some commentators really try to stretch home what that meant. I, it doesn't mean anything, it's just gifts fitted for a king and potentially provision as they go to Egypt. <laughs> Another misconception about the story, in addition to the fact that there were three Magi, there weren't three Magi, is that Jesus at this point is a newborn baby. Uh, you may have seen a nativity scene with Jesus, a baby three men, maybe a shepherd, a star in there, some presents and so forth. Uh, Jesus at this point is not a baby. He's a child. The scriptures say child, and it says house. When Jesus was born, he was a baby, and he was in a manger. So, scholars speculate, but Jesus is roughly one, maybe two years old at this point. He's He's not a baby at this point. We have likely seen the images some nativity scenes of as i mentioned magi and, and a newborn baby and, and so forth and so on we should we should get the the pop culture understanding of the christmas story out of our head and more more looking into the scripture to see what happened and it is a, the child in a house what where's the one born king of the jews they asked earlier Where's the one? This is the one, and one of Matthew's main purposes in writing his gospel is to show his audience who the long Messiah, long-awaited Messiah would be. At the end of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, in the beginning of Matthew, there's a 400-gap period there. Surely God would have forgotten by then. Not just after 70 years, or 100 years, or 200 years, or 300 years. I mean, There's 400 years of all these Old Testament promises. All these Old Testament promises of the Deliverer, of the One who was going to come, the Messiah. And it, it seemed like God was silent. It seemed like God was absent. But, but the birth of Christ, and Christ as a child being worshipped, is, is a reminder that God is not silent. That God is not absent, that God has not forgotten his promises, that God is not done with his people, that God knows, he remembers, he sees, and he acts on his timing and his timing alone and here Christ is born and he's a child and later in Matthew's gospel and all the gospels we see this perfect life, a sinless life and then he dies on the cross, suffers on the cross and rises from the dead That anyone, no matter what sins you've committed, no matter where you're from, no matter your socioeconomic or demographic or ethnicity or whoever you are, that if you turn from sin and believe and trust in this long-awaited king, all your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, and he engrafts you into the people of God forever. Story of Christ's of the Christmas season, is not one to yawn at. I fear that we've become so familiar or over-familiar with this story, we have lost the significance of his truth, of what it means. And maybe you talked about it over Christmas. You know, we've all seen, perhaps many of us have seen, a baby or a toddler open up Christmas presents. When a baby or a toddler opens up Christmas presents, they seem to be more interested in the wrapping paper than the present. presents all that time and energy and money, thinking how they're going to be so happy and so thankful to you that you bought them that present. And they spend more time biting the paper, not playing with the present, looking for a coaster, not at all interested in the present. This happens so many times. It's so cute to see. You might take a picture of it. You might take a video of it. But we can humbly and rightly say that in that moment, a baby or toddler had missed the point. They missed the point of the present. And we can be like toddlers or babies in our own spiritual lives, can't we? When we're more interested in socializing or eating or completing a task we have to complete because we have a serving area, although those things are good things, we're more interested in that kind of stuff as opposed to the present of Christ we have missed the point entirely and the point of coming here is to encounter the living god who loves you deeply so that for the rest of the week you might be able to worship him better let's pray Father, we recognize that there is only one God. We recognize that you are the only God, the God of the Bible, the one to heaven. Help us, Lord, with our lack of worship. Help us, Lord, to consider what areas in our lives that we need to place you above other things. Lord, we repent from our addiction to busyness, and social media, and coasting. God, I I pray that you would spark in us a desire to make sacrificial changes to worship you. And this is only possible because of your grace. You love us, Lord, where we're at. Thank you, Lord, that you care for each and every person in this room. And I pray that we would have a spirit of hope as we leave, that we would praise and love you more fully.